0: So good to see each and every one of you, as always. I love you, and I appreciate you. I have so enjoyed this year. This has been a good year. God has been so very good to us. We've spent a lot of time, and I've used this phrase a lot of times, about reflect and renew. We've thought a lot about self-examination, looking inside at our life and, and what what is what it should be, what isn't what it should be, how we need to change, what needs to be better, what needs to be different, and surrendering our lives to the Lord. I'm going to ask our men who passed out communion, if you would, you can go back to the back and uh, grab those forms. We're going to do something that we did at the beginning of the year this year when we introduced this theme of Reflect and Renew. You remember we took a self-evaluation. We filled out this self-evaluation form. So if you were here, uh, you've done this once already. But if you weren't here, that's great too because we're going to do it again uh, and you're going to get the opportunity to do that. So there is a screen that has a QR code. If you would rather do a digital version, you can scan that QR code. You can also go to ccmcdermott.org slash evaluate, and that has a copy of this evaluation form. There's also a children's evaluation form, so the younger ones can do it as well. There's even hard copies, paper copies of the children's version in the four year. You can grab one of those on your way out, if you've got kiddos that want to take this and sort of do a children's version of the evaluation. The idea here, of course, is that if you took it at the beginning of the year, if you did this evaluation at the beginning of the year, now you get to do it again and you get to see your progress and see how, how the Lord has been making changes, improving, renewing your life. So we'll give everybody just a second to grab those. We're not going to fill them out right now. So I mean, you can look at it if you want to, uh, but you can kind of stick that in your in your Bible or in your bag and fill that out. Hopefully this afternoon. Don't let too much time go by before you fill that out. It could be a good exercise New Year's Eve uh, to sort of evaluate where you are right now and how the Lord has blessed you through the year, but also coming going into the new year, uh, what changes need to happen. I'll give everybody just one second to get those or scan that. I'm thankful to Mikey Kinsfather, who saved each of our banners from this year and then posted them for us this morning so that we could kind of remember some of the sermon series that we've been through and how we've talked about various aspects of this idea of evaluating ourselves, examining ourselves, uh, reflecting on our lives. And then also, who is responsible for the transformation? That doesn't mean you don't have any responsibility, but the one responsible for our transformation is the Lord. And so we take the responsibility of surrendering ourselves to the Spirit or aligning ourselves with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can do that work of transformation in our lives. But we said things like this. If, we're, if we aren't evaluating ourselves we're likely deceiving ourselves. And that's really what we want to avoid, isn't it? That's what we've really focused on this year, that if we aren't evaluating ourselves, we're probably deceiving ourselves. And I hope that we've noticed as we've gone through this year and we've done a lot of introspective work, a lot of reflecting work, that it's really easy to be self-deceived, isn't it? You're probably not a liar, are you? I, I don't think most of you are liars. I don't think probably any of you are, are liars. You, you don't make a habit of lying to other people. But when it comes to lying to ourselves, a lot of us are very guilty of that, aren't we? Of fooling ourselves into thinking that we're someone that we're not. And so I hope that, that it isn't just this year that we do this. I hope that this is an ongoing practice that we make a part of our life reflecting on our lives examining ourselves because if we're not examining ourselves and evaluating ourselves we're probably deceiving ourselves so one of the things that you're going to notice as you you look back on this year and as you examine yourself hopefully what you've noticed all along is that you're not where you want to be you you might look back and say wow the lord has really granted me some growth in some of these areas and i've really grown in some of these areas but you might look and say you know what Actually, if I'm really honest, I may not even be as far along as I thought I was at the beginning of the year. I, I might have pro- progressed in some ways, but I also might have experienced some regression in some ways. I, I might have taken a step backwards. And, and so we might look at our lives and, and see that, that things aren't maybe even as good as they were 12 months ago. And, and what I want us to reflect on this morning is the place of grace and how grace really has to be the foundation of growth and how there cannot be any growth unless at the the very foundation of that is the grace of God. So I want to look at a passage in Titus this morning, and I'm going to start in chapter 2 and verse 2. And Paul is writing to Titus, and he's telling him that as he preaches to these various churches on the island of Crete, some of the things that he needs to remind them of, as Steve talked about in our communion focus this morning, some of the things that he needs to remind them of, and what Christian lives are supposed to look like, what what Christian lives are supposed to look like. So he says this to various groups of people, he says things like this, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You'll notice right there in verse 5 at the end, he says that the word of God may not be reviled. That's always one of Paul's biggest concerns, that how you live your life, how, any, how I- any individual Christian lives his or her life reflects on the community, doesn't it? It reflects on the community, it reflects on the church, and by extension, it reflects on the Lord and on the teaching that, that the Lord is giving us. Because people are going to look at your life and say, what is it that people like that believe that make them act like that? And if you're living a good life, an honorable life, they're going to look at your life and say, what is it that people like that believe that make them act like that? But if you're living a dishonorable life, if you're living a rotten life, if you're living a life that other people look at and say, man, who would ever want to live like that? Then they're going to look at your life and they're going to ask, what is it that people like that believe that make them act like that? And so at the very heart of everything that Paul teaches in all of his letters is that this this set of beliefs that we have about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do in the future, this should actually change your life. And this is the way it should change your life. This is what a life that is centered on Jesus should look like. He goes on, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, Titus live your life in such a way that you take away the ammunition from our enemies. Because there are opponents still today, aren't there? There were then and there are now people that are looking, looking to have things to say, see, Christian people, they're all like that. Christian people are like this. And there are going to be people that say that no matter what. But Paul says, live your life in such a way that that when they make accusations against us, None of it's going to stick, because you're living a life that's been transformed by the gospel. He says this about bondservants, verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is not stealing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now that's true not just for servants, but that's true for every Christian. That's everything that he's saying, isn't it? That our behavior may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know what adorn means? It means to make it beautiful. To make it beautiful. So that the community will know there is something to this belief system that they have. There's something to this this teaching that they have. Whatever it is that they believe, it's changing people's lives. And see... That's the reality, isn't it? If if this, this truth about Jesus, really gets into your heart and into your mind, if, if everything you are revolves around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is presently doing as he rules and reigns as king and high priest, and everything that Jesus has promised to do when he comes again and makes all things new. If your heart and mind really center on those things, it will change your life. It'll change your life. And we have to constantly be examining ourselves and evaluating ourselves and say, is my life reflecting what I say I believe? I say I believe all of these things about God the Father, about God the Son, about God the Holy Spirit. I say I believe these things, and I I sing these songs, and I say these prayers, and I come together with the church, but what practical difference does it make on Monday, on Tuesday, Wednesday? What practical difference does it make when I'm in the workplace? What practical difference does it make when I'm with my, my family? What practical difference does it make when I'm dealing with somebody who's rude to me? What practical difference does it make when I'm dealing with politics? What practical difference does it make when I'm afraid? What practical difference does it make when I'm grieving? What practical difference does it make when I'm worried? See, the stuff that we preach on Sunday, the stuff that we sing on Sunday, this stuff that we pray, this stuff that we confess with our mouth, it's actually supposed to be transforming our lives. Listen to this next part. Here's where I want us to focus. Verse 11. For the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I mean, in that one phrase, Paul is sort of summing up the gospel, isn't he? He's saying this is one way you could put Jesus coming into the world and Jesus showing us who the Father is and Jesus dying on the cross for us and Jesus being buried in the tomb for us and Jesus being resurrected and Jesus reigning at the right hand of God. You could put it this way. The grace of God has appeared. God's grace has appeared and has brought salvation for all people. See, grace, grace has to be the foundation of everything that we do. I, I don't know how you grew up, and I don't know if you heard grace talked about a lot in the churches you attended when you were a kid. Maybe, maybe you didn't grow up going to churches, and so even that idea of grace is kind of fuzzy. What does that mean? Or maybe you grew up going to churches and hearing preaching and and, and hearing people talk about grace and they just talked about what grace wasn't. I heard a lot of preachers talk about what grace wasn't. Well, grace isn't this and grace isn't that. Very few preachers that told me, "What, what is it? And you need to know what it is because this is what's supposed to change your life. God's grace changes everything. So I just want to spend just a second thinking about this idea of grace. The Greek word is charis. Charis is the Greek word for grace. I want to walk through some of the various meanings of the word grace, all related to each other, but listen to some of these, these meanings and nuances that the word charis takes. Number one, a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. We say things like graciousness, or attractiveness, or charm, or winsomeness. God's grace. When we talk about God's charis, God's grace, sometimes that's what we're talking about. Sometimes we're talking about the fact that God has this quality, this winsomeness, this loving quality, this charm, this attractiveness. Number two, a beneficent disposition towards someone, favor, gracious care, help, goodwill. That God wants to help. He wants to do good for people. That people who have God's people who have God's grace people who have God's grace have God's favor he wants to bless them he wants to help them he wants to do good for them number three the practical application of goodwill the actual sign of favor the gracious deed or the gift or the benefaction so when we talk about grace god's chorus it's actually something that god does a gift that he gives in most cases we're talking about salvation that god rescued people he gave this gift again not not because of who the rescued people are but because of who god is Because of God's charis, because of God's favor, because this is the kind of gracious and generous God he is. It's about his generosity. It's about the fact that he loves to give, and he loves to rescue, and he loves to bless. Is that how you think about God? Because Paul wants his readers to know, he wants the people that listen to Titus's preaching to know that it is God's generosity, God's winsomeness, God's favor, the fact that this is the, the kind of God he is that changes everything in a person's life. Number four, the exceptional effect produced by generosity. Not only is grace what God gives and why God gives it and how God gives it, but it's also the effect that it has on people who receive it. And then fifth, most interestingly, I think, the response to the generosity or to the beneficence. It's the response. We, we used to say when we said a prayer before we ate a meal, we said we were saying grace, right? Saying grace. Why do we say that? Why do we say that saying a prayer Thanking God for this food is saying grace. Because one way to talk about grace is not just the gift that is given, but also the response to that gift. That we are giving thanks because God has showed us grace. You see, grace permeates every aspect of our relationship with God. It is all about grace. It is all about the fact that He is a generous giver. And he looked on us and he had favor on us and he bestowed that favor on us and he gave us this gift. He rescued us because that's the kind of God he is. But I think it's also helped me over the last few years to to think about some of the ways that this idea of carus was used, grace was used in the first century in the Roman world. And, and a lot of scholars have put some, some thought behind the, the relationship of patrons and clients. I, I put this graphic up here because I think this might help. A patron was somebody who was incredibly wealthy, very few people had this kind of wealth that they could be a patron in the Greco-Roman world, but there were some people who were very wealthy, and then other people were their clients. In fact, most people were, were just living day to day. That's just how most people throughout time have lived. We're, we're very fortunate. We, we live in a, in a world where we can't even really fathom sometimes what it would be like for most people almost everyone to just live hand to mouth, day to day. You earn a day's wage, and you spend a day's wage on that day's food, and then the next day you do it all over again. And that's how most people live. And that meant that if something tragic happened, if your house collapsed, if your roof needed to be repaired, if you wanted to expand your business, buy another horse, buy some more material so that you could make more clothes for more people, if you wanted to buy a little bit extra land so you could plant more crops and grow more food, how are you going to do that? You weren't really able to save up anything. So you had to go and you had to have a patron. You had to have somebody who would give you charis, give you grace. Someone who was generous. Someone who was a benefactor. Somebody who could give you what you could never earn for yourself. And so if you needed to to do more or have more or fix something that was broken, you needed to find a patron. And that patron needed to give you money or resources or access or sometimes protection. And then you would enter into an ongoing relationship. It wasn't just a one-time transaction. It wasn't like going to the bank and getting a loan. You had this relationship now with this patron, with this benefactor. Who not only gave you this gift, but in response to the gift that the patron gave you, now in response, the clients would give to the patron thanks and praise and loyalty, that's a word we're going to talk about a lot this coming year, loyalty and faithfulness. And it would be this ongoing relationship where the client would continue to give loyalty and faithfulness and thanks and praise and gratitude to the benefactor. And the benefactor would continue to take care of and give charis, grace, to his clients. And it would be this ongoing relationship that at the very foundation of it was the generosity of the patron. And this is similar to, in a lot of ways, to the relationship that we have with God. That God gives us favor God gives us mercy and blessings. Not just a one-time thing when you were baptized. Yes, you got God's grace and mercy then. But don't think of it just as a one-time thing. You are walking in and living in. And every part of your being, if you're a Christian, is saturated with the grace of God. With the fact that he is generous and he loves to give you gifts. And everything He does for you, He does it because that's the kind of God He is. He is a generous God who loves to give you blessings. But of course, there's also this expectation that if you're going to live in this relationship with the giving God, that you're going to give Him your loyalty and your faithfulness and your praise and your thanks, that you're going to love Him because he's been so good to you, not, not because you think that at some point you're going to earn or deserve his blessings, no, of course not, but because you, you recognize just how generous he has been with you, and so in response you live this way. So Paul says this, he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and what does it do, verse 12, training us. Training us. Did you hear that? The grace of God is doing what? It's training us. The grace of God that's appeared bringing salvation for all people is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. As opposed to what? The age to come. Paul recognizes that there is this present age, this present age that's dominated by violence, bitterness, discord, people using one another, people abusing one another, people hating one another, people taking advantage of one another, people living as slaves to passions. And Paul recognizes that's what dominates this present age, But you have been rescued by the grace of God. God's grace has rescued you. And it's training you to live not as a person of this present age. You're living as someone who is being prepared for and shaped for, formed for the age to come. That you are living in this present age, but you're not living in this present age as someone who looks like this present age. You look like the age to come. And you you didn't get that from yourself. You didn't make that up for yourself. You didn't figure it out for yourself. It isn't because you're so smart that you figured out how to live for the age to come. It's not common sense. It has appeared to us in the form of God's grace. Because He is such a Loving and generous God, he showed you this. This is what I want for my people. This is how to live. And and what does a life that's being trained for the age to come, what does it look like? It looks like living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's both a, a negative aspect to it and a positive aspect. The negative aspect, we renounce we renounce the ways of this present age. This present age that we know is passing away, don't we? We know it's passing away. Oh, I know. I know the mean and the powerful and the strong. It seems like they're the ones who win. And if you want to win, you've got to be just as mean as they are. You've got to fight fire with fire. <laughs> Nonsense. The way of this present age is passing away. And so we renounce that. We renounce that evil. We renounce that wickedness. We we renounce living that way. We renounce the ungodliness and the worldly passions and we live like we're really the recipients of God's blessings. Self-controlled, upright, that means just, living with justice, doing justice, and godly lives. Because we recognize God has rescued us by his grace. And we live as God's, Clients, as it were. We live as those who are the recipients of God's gracious blessings. Every moment of every day. And we say, how, how does the one who has blessed me so richly want me to live? And, and what does it look like to keep walking in and living by His grace so that I continue to live in this wonderful, generous relationship with Him? He says in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. This is what we talked about last week. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the Christian life is a, a life that, it's, it's not waiting, doing nothing. It's waiting, living in anticipation, knowing that this present evil age is passing away and this, this won't last forever. This, whoever has the gold, makes the rules. This won't last forever. This living for momentary, temporary pleasures, this won't last forever. And so we we live like we know that, like we understand that, waiting for, hastening, anticipating, expecting Jesus to come. The one who has been so generous to us, who's changed us, Whose blessings that have appeared for us have changed everything. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to redeem us. That implies that we were slaves. We were slaves to lawlessness. Whether we knew it or not, we were slaves to lawlessness. And anyone who lives apart from the grace of God is living as a slave to lawlessness, following their own passions, their own desires. And we were all there. And we would all be there. And maybe some of us still are there. But Paul says, Jesus died to redeem us from that, to redeem us from this life of lawlessness to purify us, to live zealous, eager, excited to do good works. See, Jesus didn't just die to save us from the consequences of sin. He died to save us from the continuation of sin as well. Do we always think about that? He didn't just die to save us from the consequences of sin. He died to save us from the continuation of sin. He actually wants our lives to be different day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, to be transformed by His Holy Spirit, self-controlled, upright, just, godly lives, waiting for, anticipating the coming of Jesus for this present age to pass away and for us to enter into the age to come, living today like we're already there. I like to say we're like time travelers We're people from the future that are living in the present, because we know what the future holds, and the grace of God has changed us to live this way. And what I want us to remember this morning is the grace that saves us from evil trains us for good. The grace that saves us from evil trains us for good. Jesus didn't just want to save us from the consequences of sin. I hear a lot of Christians that, we celebrate that, don't we? That Jesus wants to save us from the consequences of sin, and it's true. But there's more to it than that. He wants to save us from the continuation of sin as well. So that we don't keep living the way we were living. So that we're actually different. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But it does mean we're going to be different than we were before. That we're different now because the grace of God has appeared to us and the grace of God has changed our lives, and it continues to change our life, and it will continue to change our life. But if you, if you think that living a better life is just a matter of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, just working harder and doing more and trying harder, you'll never get there. In fact, if you ever do get there, you'll just be proud of yourself and you won't be there, right? It's all by the grace of God surrendering ourselves to him for that transformation and the grace that saves us from evil trains us for good so the question is are you being trained by the grace of God not just have you been saved by the grace of God I hope you have and if you haven't what are you waiting for allow him to rescue you submit to him be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins receive the gift of the Holy Spirit but are you being trained by his grace as well? Are you being raised up from that water? Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago. Or maybe it's today. Raised up from that water to live a different kind of life, trained by the grace of God to live a life where you're zealous for good works. If we can help you this morning to put Jesus on in baptism, to come back home, ask for prayers. Our shepherds would love to meet with you in the prayer room after service. You can come forward now. Together we stand. Sing this song.